Amen. Good morning, Gospel Hope. Yeah. Well, listen, hey, as you may already be able to tell by my voice, I want to just kind of indulge your forgiveness in advance. If I sound a little scratchy, I'm a somewhat uh, subdued, um, been uh, battling, and I hope I'm on the back end of uh, a little cold here. So that means a couple of things for you. One, uh, I may not near, be as nearly as animated, and number two, I might not sweat as much. Um, but I brought the old um, washcloth just in case. Um, Nevertheless, it's always good to see your uh, smiling faces, and uh, let's, um, let's go before the Lord and reaffirm our dependency, shall we? Father God, we come before you this morning. We officially hand over these hearts to you if we hadn't done so already. We recognize that we come in with a variety of different things pulling for and vying for our attention. Lord God, whether it be what we plan to eat this afternoon or some unmet agenda or shopping list, our hearts are always filled with all kinds of debris and clutter, Lord God, that needs to be brought under your active dominion so that when you give us an audience with you, that we can hear from you, hear from you, O oh God. And so we ask, O oh God, as has already been prayed, that you would, you would speak to us, but we pray, O oh God, that our hearts would be conditioned to hear. We know you're faithful to do your part, but Lord God, move on us that we would do our part, that we would hand over all of our curiosities all of our distractions, anything other than, Lord God, you as the first love and the first focus of our hearts so that we could hear how you would have us to leave this place and live for you in between the Sundays in a way, oh God, that would give you glory in the highest. Lord God, I, um, I come, Lord God, and, and ask that, um, that you would help me, Heavenly Father, um, your ability to do what you do is not contingent on anything that I bring to the table. So, Lord God, we've always asked that you would move me out of the way. And, Lord God, it's all the more apparent this morning. So, um, help us, oh God, to serve you well in serving your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, hey, um, this is the final Sunday that we as a family will worship together before uh, the Christmas season kind of reaches its crescendo, right? And we've been watching this momentum build for quite some time, right? I mean, as early as October, you begin to see, you know, on one aisle, you know, pumpkins and, and et cetera, and then you go two aisles over and you already start to see holly and snowmen. Um, after that, um, I mean, Thanksgiving is just kind of a speed bump on the way to Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And then it's that mad frenzy from the dinner table, even for some of ourselves, to get out there and try to catch and capture the best deals. And so just the, the celebratory momentum of Christmas just is inching up and inching up. And then at some point, I guess once your shipping dates are no longer prior to the 25th, we start to settle in and realize we can start focusing on something else, or at least the anticipation of opening the gifts. But there's a, there's a kind of seasonal celebratory momentum that the culture enjoys, enjoys, whether you believe in Jesus Christ or not. Just Christmas just kind of comes with that. It just kind of brings the culture into a singular focus point, uh, uh, you know, children's Christmas plays, uh, 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 even the neighbor that says, you know what, I celebrate Jesus all year long, but you know, they do a little something extra when it comes to putting their lights up, right? Um, but, but, but all of us, just, just Christmas just comes with a certain seasonal uh, uh, momentum and kind of a crescendo that we'll all experience. And then by the time we get back together, we'll start to kind of tick down and move into, you know, bowl season, March Madness, you know, etc. All these other things will become kind of the focus. But um, I believe that the Lord calls us to something a little bit different. But before I get to the difference, there's a few things that I like to share with you just about that Christmas momentum. Of all the little varieties that I mentioned, there's one or two that I enjoy.
enjoy. Still from my childhood, uh, I don't spend hours doing it, but I like to ride through the neighborhood and just kind of look at the different lights and the different styles of decor. Because I believe that how people decorate their homes is indicative not so much of their belief, but at least some of their passions around the holiday. And so I've captured a few photos from you for you uh, from around the, the subdivision I want to share, because I think uh, they help us to appreciate something of the momentum uh, that, that comes with Christmas uh, during the season. So if we could, let's look at photo number one that I've curated for you. I, I call this one convenient decor. Convenient decor is I'm not getting on the ladder for you, um, baby. I'm just going to, whatever we got in the basement, I'm going to put that up on the front door and we'll just kind of, you know, hammer a few things up there. But, it, you know, it's, it's subtle, it's stated. We celebrate Christmas. That's cool. Um, that's, that, I call that convenient decor, convenient decor. Whatever we got, no ladders, no, no, nothing overstated. Let's go to the next one. I call this piece classy decor. So classy decor is, we are going to get on the ladder, but, but we're not going to do anything to our property that takes away from its natural accents, right? We're going to celebrate Christmas in a way that makes our property, you know, you know, uh, you know kind of increase, you know, make it pop a little bit. I call this classy decor. So you see these different styles of decor we have out here. Let's go to the next one. Now I call this one crazy decor. Now, this is located right here in town. Uh, you pull up in front of this house, and there's actually a radio station. You can't see it. There's a radio station that you are recommended to tune into as you sit in front of the house. It's a full acre of every possible, imaginable emblem of Christmas. I mean, sleigh, reindeer, angels, just a full shot. I mean, you know, a snowman. I mean, just anything you can imagine, they have it. It's like a full acre of decorations. You turn into a certain radio station. I think it's like 89.9, right, Doria? And the music on the station is actually coordinated to the lights. So as the, the music makes its kind of movements or whatever, the lights in the yard are doing this, this thing is crazy. As a matter of fact, as I was there taking the picture, I almost got ran over because people were constantly doing the same thing. I guess they was getting ready to preach Sunday too. Um, so they need to get a couple of photos you know, of just people just driving in and out, taking selfies in front of this during the daytime if they can or at dawn or dusk. But I called this one crazy decor, crazy decor. But let's go to this one. This is my personal favorite. It's right at the opening of our neighborhood. I call this one conscious decor. This is, I get a kick out of this. This is, this is a three-piece decoration outfit. This is the only thing that this particular neighbor does every single year. You got the spotlight, a cross, and you got Jesus kneeling. I just, he just so, just, I mean, excuse me, you got Santa kneeling to Jesus. You got Santa kneeling to the cross, and I, and I just love this because that's all he does. There's no reef on the door. You don't even see people moving on the property. He's just letting you know, and he's like the third house after you enter the subdivision. He's just kind of letting you know, like, this is the reason for the season. This is how we celebrate it. So you have all these different types of decor, and as infinite as the varieties are, I could go on and show you all kinds of different decorating strategies, right? But as, as, as varied and diverse as these different families are in participating in the celebratory uh, uh, Christmas, you know, spirit, they all have one thing in common. In about two weeks, that stuff goes down and gets put back in the box. And you have really no way of identifying where people actually stand. The seasonality of Christmas, in our culture, here it is basically, in our culture today, Christmas is a, 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 is, a is a celebration that is often both inconsistent and woefully seasonal, but the good news creates a momentum that should be constant and transformational. 
This is something that I believe that we'll learn from today's text is what does that momentum and that constant transformation look like? But I'm going to say this again. While the cultural celebration of Christmas is largely inconsistent and seasonal, the good news creates the kind of momentum that should be and that is constant and transformational. If you would join me in your Bibles and take a look at Luke chapter 2 verses 8 through 15, we're going to just kind of park for a minute and look at a few verses. We'll walk them out as we're working up to the angel psalm. But verse 8 says this, And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And if we could just bounce down to verse 15, because I think something very important happens right there in verse 15, and it says this, and when the angels went away from them into the heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Jerusalem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. What a contrast in attitude and activity. Notice that when the shepherds first were encountered by the angels, they were what, according to the Bible? Filled with fear. But in verse 15, just a few moments later, they are saying, let's not be filled with fear. Let's go and see what God is doing. I believe that is indicative of the kind of momentum that God wants the good news to have in our lives every single day. Not just in this particular moment, but every single day, I believe that God desires that the good news produces the kind of momentum that moves us from fear to faith. Because it takes faith to drop what you are doing to go see what God is doing. It takes faith to move from a feeling of great overwhelming fear and inadequacy to actually having the kind of urgency that says, let's just stop watching our sheep and go look at what God is doing in our region. And that is exactly the kind of momentum that I believe believers ought to model in their lives during, not just during the Christmas season, but over and over again in our lives. The world needs to know, if you want to help us celebrate the reason for the season, don't leave your lights up all year long. They need to see at work within our lives a kind of momentum that only God can create through the good news coming in. And that good news, again, gobbles up our fear and it moves us to a place of faith. And that's the first point. The first move of momentum that ought to be happening in our lives is this. The good news is constantly moving us from fear to faith. It moves us from a place of, oh no, to let's go. It moves us from a place of inadequacy to great urgency to drop what I'm doing to go see what God is doing. Now, when we talk about the good news coming in and being something that, that, that really whisk away our fear and move us to a place of faith, It's not that it causes us to ignore our fears or turn a blind eye to them and say, let's just be more hopeful and optimistic. That's the world's brand of encouragement. God, through the good news, actually gobbles up our fear. How does that happen? Let me give you just a brief example from my own life, and this is a way that I try to practice this in a very practical way. Whenever I find myself in a place stuck with fear, I ask a basic question, where is this coming from? Because in my analysis of the Bible, fear is not introduced into the human spectrum of emotion until there is a fall, until there is sin. So I just estimate that all my fears come from one of two places, either unaddressed sin or misunderstood attribute of God. And so because of that, I look at my fear, I write them down on paper, and then I move immediately over to the other side of the paper, and I assign an attribute of God, a passage of Scripture in particular that speaks to that. But the exercise isn't over just because I sit there and fill out a form. I go throughout the rest of my day and my week or my month, however it is, waiting for God to do something that beautifully illustrates the good news or the greatness of His character and glory in such a way that I cross that fear off my list because I 
see God's word gobbling up that fear. So in other words, the good news doesn't cause us to ignore or pretend like we don't have fears. It calls us to address them in the glory of God. Let the glory of God shine on that thing. Let the glory of God convert that thing. Let the glory of God, let the attributes of God say something about the area of our life that we have fear so that it actually becomes the fuel of our faith and not just the stuff that we're trying to ignore so that we can have more faith. Does that make sense? So faith isn't just the, the trying to ignore the things that aggravate us. It's taking it and handing it over. And how do I set this on fire and let it become the stuff that my faith is fueled by? So the shepherds experience this first move of momentum. They go from fear to faith. Belief in what God has said does not ignore my fear. You've heard this, but it actually transforms it. And so we need to just be careful and real about where our fears come from. It isn't just a basic phobia. It arrives again in our lives as a result of something that hasn't fully seen God clearly or a topic that God hasn't weighed in on our lives fully. Let's take a look at the next movement in the passage as the angels speak. It says in verse 10, and the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. The first movement is that the good news moves us constantly from a place of fear to faith. But number two, the good news moves us constantly from a place of good to great. How many people have heard of the book, Good to Great? There's two of them out there on the market. One of them is written by Jim Collins. It's a business book, teaches organizations and leaders how to uh, build within the fabric of their organizations uh, the kind of strategies and systems uh, and, and culture infusions that would move them from just being good to being great. Give them kind of, uh, uh, these companies, longevity. It helps companies build the kind of internal character and nature that refuses to look at what was good or what worked yesterday as being good enough, right? It's a good book. You should read it. But then also Chip Ingram wrote a book called Good to Great in God's Eyes. And what he did was he looked at the lives of those who are considered to be great Christians, those who are living on the, the cutting edge of faith, who are doing big things for God, who are making moves, who are moving from oh no to let's go, who are moving from a place of inadequacy to great urgency for God. And Chip Ingram outlines like these seven or eight attributes of like read great books, think great thoughts, pray great prayers, uh, um, you know, have great friends. He outlines all these attributes that believers that are moving from good to great should embrace body. Well, long before Chip Ingram and long before Jim Collins ever set pen to paper and come in with this concept that people should not just settle for good but move to great, God was doing the same thing in the good news. You see, the good news moves us from good to great in this regard. Because in Christ, what you hear God declaring is that a salvation that is exclusive to the Jews is not good enough. A, a, a good creation that has been cracked by sin, that's not good enough. A government that can ensure the human flourishing of all of its citizens in every culture is not good enough. A people who bear my name but are barely known in the earth is not good enough. Uh, temples made with men's hands that you think me, I'm going to live in, that's not good enough. Cultures that clash because they have forgot that they were all made of one blood to dwell on the face of the earth and seek after God because he be not far from them, that is not good enough. God says that knees that would bow down to dead idols made from trees because they never heard the word of the living God, that's not good enough. And so because God looks down from heaven and says that these things are not good enough, the gospel is this. It is his declaration of and a solution for that humanity's current state is simply not good enough. It's just not good enough. He looks from heaven. He says, this is not my original plan and design. My people are broken. My people are downtrodden. 
Those who bear my name are under the foot of other governments. And, and while humility has its value, God says, this is not good enough. And that's what the presentation of the Savior does. It's God declaring, I see the issue and I have a solution for it. I'm not just standing in heaven complaining. I've got good news. I'm coming to fix it. And so the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus coming is constantly moving us from good to great. In our own personal lives, we ought to be constantly looking at areas where we have just co-signed to good and nothing else. And ask ourselves, that is the gospel doing something in my heart, trying to invade my life and move me just a couple of clicks forward to greatness for him? Because that's what the good news does. It moves us from a place of fear to faith. It moves us from a place of good to great. But it does something else. There's even more momentum in the passage as we build toward the great crescendo of the angels singing in heaven. In verses 11 and 12, look at this. It says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Verse 12. Actually, I just read that. But what I love about these two contrasting passages is something uh, uh, quite interesting. I see this collection of, of three attributes of the Savior. Well, again, it's a Savior to Christ the Lord. And then we also see this will be a sign for you, a baby that is wrapped in swaddling clothes. Uh, why, well, I wonder what was going on in Luke's mind or what, would the, what did the Holy Spirit intend by giving us a passage that beautifully depicts, depicts and contrasts these two, different, these two different sets of views of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, excuse me, uh, who, who is the Savior, Christ the Lord, and then you will find what you're going to see is a baby wrapped in swaddling lying in a manger. But what you're looking at is Christ, the son of David, a king and a Lord. I, I believe this is all the more intentional as I believe in just the verbal and plenary uh, inspiration of scripture. But, but here's what I want you to see and understand. The good news is constantly moving my view from the cradle to the crown. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, just a couple of weeks ago, um, I, uh, I got stranded in, uh, you guys have heard the Chronicles of Latandra, right? Most of you that have been walking with us as a family know about this pickup truck that I just have, you know, such love for. I'm not getting rid of it. I just love to drive it everywhere, but often she puts me down. And so um, I happened to be over in the old fourth ward one day. And uh, my truck put me down, and I needed to call the towing company. So I picked up the phone. I called my insurance company. I got the representative from um, um, the company uh, uh, for uh, roadside assistance on the phone. And ever so nice. Oh, Mr. Dewberry, call me by name. I love that kind of customer service. Um, uh, had such a classy phrase. She said, uh, I hope you have a better day. Right? So she knew I wasn't having a good day because my vehicle is down. And she's just, I can just hear her clicking away. And she's just like, okay, Mr. Dewberry, we're going to get this squared away for you. She was taking all of these notes on where my vehicle was positioned, what kind of vehicle it was, so that she could make sure when she called the towing company, they brought up the, the perfect truck for me and all these different things. And then she, boom, got that all lined up. And it's like, I'm going to be calling you back uh, in just a few moments to make sure that this was all taken care of. I was just loving it. I'm just sitting there just stranded, just enjoying myself. Just keep talking. Loving the compassion that she's showing. Then an hour rolls by, no tow truck. 
So then I get ready to call her. She calls me back. Mr. Dewberry, are you still there? Yes, I am. What's going on with my toe? Oh, my goodness, Mr. Dewberry, the first company um, decided not to take the toe. I've already aligned another company. I love, once again, she's beating me to the punch. I love the compassion. I love the customer service. I'm sorry you're going through this. I hope you have a better day. Right? And so she's doing her thing. And then, of course, um, more time rolls by, no truck. So then I call her. I beat her to the punch this time. She goes, Mrs. Dubray, this is so ridiculous. I'm going to give you the phone number to the towing company and let you call them yourself. I was like, all right, perfect. So I called the towing company. Yeah. I was like, yeah, this is Mrs. Dubray. You, you, um, you took a job from me. I'm over here in old fourth ward waiting to be picked up. Oh, yeah. Man, uh, hold up a second. Let me, let me call and see where the truck at. Um, so he calls. I hear all kind of fumbling and banging in the background. Uh, he ends up hanging up on me. I call him back. Hey, man, where's the truck? Look, man, um, man, it's the SEC championship. It's a parade out here. It's raining and the roads is blocked off. We ain't going to be able to do it. What? You ain't going to be able to do it. But, 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 but I was like, man, I mean, you, you got through. I was like, I have a very specialized towing need based on how my truck is broke down. Like, not everybody has a truck. Oh, yeah, we got the equipment, man. We got the equipment, but we can't get to you. And I was like, are you kidding me? Why do I tell this exotic touring story, right? Because I'm, it, this is why. Because in one phone call, but through two separate entities, I've got capacity, but no compassion. In the other one, I got compassion, but no capacity. You see, old girl who showed me all that great compassion, she couldn't come out there in no truck and get me. As much as she loved me and spoke well to me and felt compassionate about my situation. An old boy who had the truck and all the right equipment and knew how to drive it and back it up and take me to Snailville and drop me off and do all this kind of stuff, he didn't have no compassion for my situation. Why is this even relevant? Because the reason that the gospel invites us to focus simultaneously on both the cradle and the crown is because the Bible wants us to understand that Jesus Christ has full humanity and all at the same time full capacity and authority, that he's lacking nothing. Yes, he is a savior, he is a king, and he is a lord. He is a Christ. He's got all kinds of horsepower and ability to come in and pull us out of and drag us out of any situation we could possibly have. But at the same time, because he is fully and authentically human, Having been a baby, lying in the most humble of circumstances, having grown up in a human body, experienced pain, experienced the temptation of sin, but not fall to any of him, experienced the death and loss of a close friend, experienced people who, who derode him and spat in his face, having experienced treachery within his own social circle, his closest 12 friends, he knows exactly what we are going through. He has simultaneous compassion and capacity. That's what the good news declares and why we need to be focused on both the cradle and the crown. The Bible puts it a lot better than I can. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, but yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. When we go to the Lord Jesus Christ, it ain't going to be just good customer service and wishing us a better day. It's someone who can fully understand what we're going through regardless of what it is and be fully capable to meet us in the place of our need. This is why both the cradle and the crown are equally necessary in our appreciation of the good news. So here it is. The good news gives the believer full joy and confidence in God's unending compassion and his unending competence. And so 
as we see the Christmas nativity scenes will get folded up and put away, we ought to constantly keep that in mind, that our Lord is authentically human, not some rich superhero who could never identify with our woe and with our pain and the places that we come from in life. This is a crucial part of our understanding and our glorification of our Savior, that he fully understands us, but yet he is fully capable of coming to rescue us. This is indeed good news. Look at verses 13 and 14 as we really enter into the heart or the actual angel's song. It says, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I want to read that again and I want you to pick up on something. And suddenly... Suddenly, there was with the angel, singular, a multitude of heavenly hosts, plural, uh, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among or peace with those uh, with whom he is pleased. Here's another thing that the good news does, why it has constant annual momentum day by day and not just seasonal. The good news constantly calls us to individually enjoy God's peace while also inviting others to engage in his praise. I want you to hear and see this. It was not enough for even heaven to make the announcement just singularly without others getting involved. I hope for us what we hear loud and clear is that as we experience and enjoy a peace that only God can provide, that we don't just hoard the peace, we don't just keep the peace, we're not just secret beneficiaries of the peace, but like the angels, we bring others in on the conversation to constantly praise God. That's the kind of momentum that the good news desires to create. If you remember the original announcement said, this is great news, good news of great joy to all people, not just to your people, not just to this private party that was watching sheep in a field nearby. The gospel is intended to be socialized heavily so that multitudes participate in the praise of God. The good news is constantly calling us to individually enjoy his peace, but to immediately invite others to engage in his praise. When I read this passage several times, even especially growing up, you look at this and it's like, man, y'all singing over some peace? I mean, that seems kind of like mundane and simple. What's up with peace? Is peace really that big of a deal? And I think it is. But sometimes our experience with peace is very myopic. It's very singular in its focus. And it's not as grand as the unique kind of peace that God provides. Here's what I mean. When we think about peace, you can have chronological peace, right? I mean, there'll be a certain time of the day when this building will have a succession of activity. There'll be no mics. There'll be no movements. There'll be no drums. There'll be no sounds. There will be peace. There'll be just a time of peace. Some of you, uh, maybe depending on how good or bad your children are, you oftentimes put them in what? Time out because you want a season of peace, right? You just want a time where there's no aggravation or no destruction. That's chronological peace, just a period of time with no disruption. But then there's also legal peace. You can have two nations that'll sign a piece of paper that will come up with a peace treaty. They may hate each other's guts privately and even publicly, but they just sign a legal document that says we won't advance our artillery on each other. We won't shoot any bombs at each other. That's also a kind of peace. 
But in addition to that, we also have relational peace. Relationally, where we have no known conflict in our immediate social circle, we've strategically decided to do relationship in such a way that we don't have any folks in that circle that aggravate us, and the moment that they do, we give them their walking papers. We defriend them, we unfollow them, we decide not to call them, nor do we invite them to stuff at our house. We can even have relational peace, but we're very selective and strategic about how we go about it. But then we can also have personal peace, where we just kind of go out, we just kind of do some yoga or whatever your thing is, drink some chamomile tea, sit on the couch in front of your favorite show, where there's nothing internally that is a, a, a dissonance to you. You are at ease. You're just kind of drifting and chilling, or whatever phrase fits your vernacular. There is personal peace. But the good news brokers a kind of peace through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that is unmatched anywhere else in life. I believe the Bible put it this way, do not be anxious for anything, but uh, in every Everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God and the peace of God, which does what? Surpasses all understanding. In other words, it takes all that peace that I just described and gobbles it up and say, oh my goodness, it blows my circus. This isn't just national peace. It isn't just relational peace. It isn't just chronological peace. It isn't time sensitive. It isn't agenda based. This is a peace that surpasses all understanding. It is a peace that only God can provide. Well, where does that peace come from? It comes from the work of the Savior. Here's why. Here's why and here's how. You see, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ satisfies the wrath of God against us. Just in case you didn't know, the Bible tells us that God is angry with the unbeliever every day. We've sold the public a bill of goods that God's love means that he's always and only super duper nice. But at the fundamental basis of the gospel is that we need to understand that we have a Savior who dies for us because someone has to satisfy the wrath of God against us. The reason that we are able to have peace at any level is because the first person who we made mad is brought to a place of compassion toward us in the sacrifice of Christ. It is the Savior. It is the Savior. It is the, uh, 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 the Christ. It is the Lord. It is the Savior who brings about this secession of God's wrath against those who would trust in his death. But not only that, we also, in Christ, we are purchased we are purchased, and the people, and because he, he, he purchases us, the gospel comes into our lives in such a way that it makes every single ism ridiculous. In other words, the Lord comes in, and he purchases a people for himself, gives them a new name and a new identity in such a way that in the blood of Christ, so we were all made of one blood, but then we are all redeemed by one blood, and we all gain, regain one identity that makes every ism, feminism, sexism, socialism, misogynism, racism, every type of ism that you could possibly imagine that keeps people divided becomes so utterly ridiculous in Christ because we are now held together under one person's possession or as one person's possession in God. And so the work of Jesus does that. But it does something else through Christ. Not only does his sacrifice satisfy the wrath of God and his purchase brings the people together in one collected people of God, but his work on the cross also harmonizes the creature once and for all with the creator. It harmonizes us. It brings us into a place where we are all on the same page. If you remember when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, one of the, the linchpins of that prayer was, thy will on earth be as it is in heaven. 
In other words, there, God desires that there be a har harmony between himself and the creature. And only Christ is able to broker that harmony. Only Christ is able to deal with the animosity. Only Christ is able to deal with the wrath. Only Christ is able to bring about a kind of peace that surpasses both the chronological, the legal, the relational, the personal, and be an authentic, supernatural peace that only God can provide. And we ought to be sharing that reality. Because that kind of peace has momentum every day, all day long. The Bible says that when people see you live in that way, they'll ask questions. They'll get curious about the hope that is within you. And you can tell the simultaneous story of the baby Jesus somewhere in March. How I got a God who has wonderful and full compassion because he understands my woe. But at the same time, he has, one, he has all capacity because he understands that I can't pull myself out of the situation. The Christmas story does have perpetuity. It does have legs beyond the Christmas season, but we need to know how to tell it. But we can't tell it unless this Christmas story has taken deep root within us the way it did in the shepherds. When they, when they heard God's voice and when they heard the message through the angels, they went from what? Oh no, to let's go. Let's see what God has done. Let's see what he is saying. Let's check out this Savior in Bethlehem. When we talk about the song of the angels, let's read it one more time there in verse 13, because I think there's something important to note. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Who is that unique group with whom he is pleased? Out of all these unique, wonderful benefits and attributes that I've described of the Lord Jesus Christ, none of them are yours unless you place faith in him. Amen. None of them are yours. These are not just, this is not just the decoration of the Bible. It isn't just open season and all of that is just, it is what it is. No, no, we must place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the reality of that both satisfactory, substitutionary death that harmonizes us, the creature, with the creator. We must place faith in him. We must trust that what God is saying is true over against everything else in us. This is how we come to know this peace that surpasses all understanding. And it also has another attribute with it. As the angel showcased us, and knowing that God's end game is that the work of heaven and that the work of earth would almost echo each other and look identical, this is when we get to a place where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The song of the angels isn't just a text. It's a preamble that should be at work within our lives every single day. Lord, how do we move from the individual to the innumerable place? How do I go from just good news, oh God, to great news? How do I go from a place where I just appreciate the basic tenets of the Lord Jesus Christ and how they apply to me to now begin to socialize that in such a way that, that, that I take it to the multitudes? This is our call. We are not called just to enjoy the gospel individually, but we are called to promote it universally. And one of the things that we must take with us is how it is that God produces this wonderful and incredible peace through his son. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning thanking you and praising you for your word and its power. It stands alone singularly. And you, O oh God, in your word tell us that we must preach it, and through the preaching, O oh God, that you do something to impart and cultivate faith in the life of the hearer. So once again, even though it's the preacher's preaching, it is your word that's giving the power. 
and telling the story of how it happens. I pray, oh God, for us today that if there's areas in our life where we're mangled in fear, that you are now moving us, Lord God, to faith. If there's areas in our life where we're stuck just living the good life, but we're not living a life of great joy that only you can provide, that, that we're being convicted to do so now. I pray, oh God, if we're being on the people who have just, uh, we've appealed to one of your attributes or the other, but in that we're not experiencing satisfaction to know that you're God who is fully compassionate but fully capable, convict us accordingly, and Lord God, encourage us now. I pray also, oh holy God and Father, that we become a people who will become individual beneficiaries of your peace, that you would now compel us, compel us, Lord God, to tell others about it. But not just the story, but that we would tell them the gospel and how it is that we came to have this deep and incredible peace. And it is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.